Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. Man, it is good to be back. I missed you guys so much last week. We are going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, 14 through 16. So just three verses, but I don't want you to think that means that it's going to be uh, shorter. Um, I, the way I see it is I've got a week off last week. And so it's a double sermon tonight. Um, I'm just kidding. But I am so excited um, for this. So go ahead and, if you brought a Bible, please get it out now. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible... Um, we have on the screen. If you didn't bring a Bible and you want one, let us know. We would love to get one for you so that you can uh, follow along God's Word with us um, as we go through these Tuesday nights. Um, man, I'm so excited for fall retreat. I, uh, I know a lot of you all are in, is it technically midterms time right now? Okay, so a lot of you all are like barely here, uh, but I appreciate you all making it. Um, these nights are so important, um, and I think I'm going to say as I get older, and I know I'm not that old, it turned 30 this year, um, which seems significant, um, but I, I've learned more and more just how much every day matters, you know? Like, we, um, we really aren't guaranteed another Tuesday altogether, and, and God in his sovereignty gave us uh, one more to love and, and worship him and, and love and serve one another tonight, so I'm really thankful um, that you're here. And so, what I want to do in the very beginning is just read the text. So it's three verses tonight, but I hope what you're going to see, even as I'm reading it, is that these verses, as does the entire Bible always, but especially I think these verses, as it pertains to your fight against sin and your struggle to live the Christian life that you know we're called to, these verses speak so powerfully to that. And so I'm going to read that now. Verse 14, here we go. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Man, this is so good for us. Uh, the title of the sermon, if you're a note taker and you need titles, um, is just hold fast and draw near. Hold fast and draw near. And I pull those, hopefully you saw that, right out of the text. Um, in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, we see Two commands, um, to hold fast to our confession of Jesus, to draw near to our high priest, who is Jesus. These are intimate, incredible realities that I really do believe. If we can, in humility, come begging God to do something in us, leave here, change these ideas, what is in the word can actually change your fight for holiness and change your life. And if you're in Christ, I know you want this. You don't want to be 
limping with the same sins and temptations. You want to have victory over the darkness out there and darkness in you. And man, these verses can be a weapon for that. And so throughout these three verses, we're gonna go really deep. Um, We're gonna need to leave the text for a little bit in order to see some of the beauty of Jesus from the rest of the Bible. And so throughout this, we're gonna stop, like I said, leave the passage, see some other text to give us some weight behind this. And what we're going to learn, we're going to learn about our, the high priestly work of our Savior. We'll learn about the, how that idea fuels our holding fast. We're going to learn about the nature of our great high priest and how, if we understand that, we will love him more and more. And we're going to learn some serious doctrine tonight. Um, that's not a scary word. This is a good word. Good doctrine, right teaching are like steel beams for your soul when you're fighting sin or when you're going in suffering. This is how God builds you into a man or into a woman fit for his kingdom work. And throughout that, we will learn about the intimacy of prayer. And hopefully, by God's grace, through it all, we will get new and exciting ways to love Jesus and celebrate his gospel. So, that being said, I want to do a brief kind of anchoring in from last week. So thank you to Adam for um, filling in for me while I was sick. It really is good to be back. I'm excited to preach this. But if you recall, if you were here last week, what you learned is that there is salvation rest for the people of God who have it by faith in Christ. We learned that in the Christian life, we have beautiful paradoxes. You remember this, this striving to enter rest. It's an interesting idea, right? We, we strive to rest. So in our resting in Christ, we move with effort and energy toward the rest that is already ours in Christ. And then that passage from last week ends with a penetrating reality about the Bible. You recall this in verse 12 and 13. Let me read this to you. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so we saw this idea that the word of God is not dead and distant, it is living and active. And by the power of God's spirit, the word is actually living and active as we read it, as we're communing with God himself. A sharp sword that literally can discern and expose the thoughts and intentions of your heart. This is how known you are by a loving father, down to the intentions of your heart. And this is also, for those of you who have not surrendered to Christ, this is how known you are by a God that you have rejected. Think about that. He knows even down to the deepest, darkest thoughts and the intentions of your heart. And the idea of these verses is to show off the gift that we have in the word. And if you love Jesus, this is a joy for you. Whenever you are exposed, your, your sin is um, uncovered. It's not a reason to think God's just out to get me. It is a joy to be able to, by grace, repent of these things to become more like Christ. A father with this much mercy and this much grace, it is only a good thing for you to see more of your sin. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Nothing hidden from his sight These are realities that don't just change our futures. They change the way we live moment by moment following Christ. So that big backdrop in place, let's look at verse 14. 
Since then we have a great high priest who was passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And so what's obvious here is that we need to let the greatness of our high priest, namely Jesus, the Son of God, and his passing through the heavens fuel our confidence in the confession of the gospel. You see that? It says, since we have a great high priest who has done this, let us hold fast. So something about the beauty of what Jesus has done should fuel our ability, should give weight and power to you as a follower of Christ wanting to hold fast to the confession. And what we've seen over and over again in Hebrews is that holding fast to the confession, it is not a one-time decision that you made. It's not a, yeah, I remember, you know, saying yes to Jesus on a salvation card and then we all threw our sins in a bonfire, all right? Nothing wrong with that, although that wouldn't atone for your sins, obviously, but you get my point. It's not an emotionally charged up moment of, yes, I'm saying yes to Jesus now, but then it doesn't change the way that I live. It is a holding fast to the confession is not a one-time decision. It is a commitment that lasts. Imperfect, of course, but it lasts until we see Jesus face to face. That's what it's trying to get at. We've got to be the type of people who do that. And so it says the power for that is in the first part of verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest um, throughout The book of Hebrews, I've tried to continually bring it to our attention that the book of Hebrews is designed to show us how the Old Testament story points to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And one of the major themes of the Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, is the idea of the priesthood. And we've already seen this in Hebrews chapter 2 a couple weeks ago. Verse 17 said, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. You all remember this passage so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so once again, we're seeing these echoes of the beauty of Jesus being your high priest. He became human for us. He made the sacrifice necessary for our sins. And if you remember in the Moses sermon, priesthood sacrifices, what they did, they made sacrifices to point forward to Jesus' sacrifice, and they kept the tabernacle and temple in worship to God. And all in all, what we see in Hebrews 2 is that part of the priesthood work was to minister to the worship of God and the spiritual care of the people of God. All of that designed for us to see Jesus is the true and better high priest. And so I want to give you a quick biblical theology of priesthood. All right, and I mean quick, all right? We are not gonna cover it all right now, but if you have questions about this and wanna talk more, come find me. I would love to talk about this idea. But quickly in the Old Testament, whenever God delivers his people, remember the story of Moses, he delivers them from Egypt and gives them a law. Part of that in Exodus 19, verse six, he tells them they are going to be a kingdom of priests. And then what we see is the priestly work of the people of God focused on the tribe of Levi, and they did the priestly work of worship and sacrifice and tending the temple. And in that tribe, and in a specific line, we get the high priest. So the high priest, he was the boss. It was his main responsibility, culminated in something called the Day of Atonement. We're actually gonna get to that in Hebrews 10, so stick around for spring semester. But his main idea was to make the yearly sacrifice that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice in Christ. And so... Jesus himself steps in as that ultimate high priest. 
His life, his death, his resurrection put an end to the temporary priesthood of the Old Testament. And we're going to continue to see that in this section of Hebrews. But then, it's beautiful how God does this, in his death and resurrection, sending his spirit to the people of God, giving us a mission as his disciples, he actually calls us priests. All of us. Not just me because I'm a pastor. All believers in the priesthood of God. Look at 1 Peter 2.9. It'll be up on the screen. You'll have to turn there. But listen for the Old Testament themes in this. This is talking about the church. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our great high priest still makes his people a kingdom of priests, who worship him and remind people of the sacrifice that he made. So, back to our verse. (laughs) Since then we have a great high priest, and we do, hopefully we're seeing that, in Jesus. And then verse 14 shows us what he has done. He has passed through the heavens. So what does that mean? Just as the high priest of Israel would pass through the Holy of Holies, the holiest part of the Old Covenant temple, Jesus Christ himself now is at the throne of God. Please remember, this is the same Jesus that is human now. Think about this. God the Son, put on flesh, lived, died, rose again, passes through the heavens to sit at the right hand of God the Father. And what this means for us now is there's one of us in the holiest place. There's a human there, and his name is Jesus, and that is the one that we are in by faith. He has finished the work and brought us into this royal priesthood, and because of that, you can hold fast. Jesus really did come and live and die and rise and go back to his Father. Heaven is open now for those of us who are in Christ. This is the fuel and the power of our confession, and it is how we hold fast. We keep our eyes on our high priest. And this has a million implications for us. The fact that Jesus is reigning and interceding for you. But I love that this passage in particular tonight takes a turn directly into the heart of Jesus for weak, sinning sufferers like us. And so before you see the beauty of verse 15, I want to stop and pause and remind you Campus Collective has no interest in putting on a Christian ministry performance every week. We are talking about these things not so that we, I get off the stage and everybody's like, oh, good speech, okay? You have sin in your life. You have suffering. You have weakness. Your life falls short of the call of the glory of God. And Jesus is offering help to the path into the joy of knowing him intimately. And so I'm talking to you tonight. If you failed again last night, you promised you would never do that again, and then you did. Or I'm going to really finally get over this sin, or I'm not going to let my mind go down that path again. These verses are for you. I believe that Jesus wants you to be free of that, and I believe he wants you to overcome And so let's see what the high priest means for people like that. Verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So we see the idea there. Verse 15 starts with four. Another reason that we can hold fast to our confession 
is because of this glorious showing of the heart of Christ. Please understand, the one in heaven is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Do you realize the resurrected Christ still has scars in his hands and in his feet? He understands human weakness. Jesus Christ, the one who passed through the heavens, sympathizes with you. In your weakness. Do you realize what sympathize means? Deep, compassionate, resonating with the feelings of your weakness. He gets human weakness. He understands the struggle of the full range of emotions that come with living in a fallen world. Listen to me. You can hold fast to your confession because he sympathizes with you. He didn't go to heaven, pass through the heavens, take up his residence on the throne, and then wish you good luck. Didn't say, here's my example, guys. Live it up. Try to be this. No. Dies for our sins, reigns from heaven on high, and wants you to know that part of that high priestly work is he's looking at you, and he understands, and he sympathizes with your weakness. He came to earth and redeemed you in himself and brought you to his heart. And though we are not with him yet, we know that he is still with us in our weakness. And one of the major weaknesses of the human condition is the fact that we exist in a world where temptations exist. Temptations abound in our world. I don't think I needed to tell you that, but if you haven't opened your eyes to that, you should things that would lure us to sin and dishonor God, that would rob our joy and ruin your life, disguised as true happiness and freedom. Things that kill us, disguised as true life. We've all experienced this. We've been tempted in these ways, overcome by temptation. But look at the glory of this verse. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So, I know this is not a deep interpretation, but I am just going to read what it says. Jesus has been tempted in every respect that we are. He's not an inconsiderate, unsympathetic, distant, cold, big brother in heaven. He is one who came to earth to take it all for us. Yet, he didn't sin. <laughs> This is such good news. First, he actually is the perfect sacrifice because he didn't sin. He actually did go into the mess of this world as full of temptations as it is and didn't sin. Now, I've heard this before in a debate about this, and maybe your mind's already going here, but maybe your pushback is, well, yeah, he's God, though. Like, <laughs> he couldn't have sinned anyways. He didn't have a sin nature. How does this helpful? This is actually even better than that. Jesus felt the full force of sin and temptation and still never sinned. Think about it. Whenever you're tempted to sin in your own life, in your private life, and nobody's watching, and you feel those urges, those lusts, those cravings, whatever, to fall into something that would dishonor God and rob your joy, the moment that you give in to the temptation is when the temptation stops, right? Right? And that's when the sin begins. Because if you're 
tempted to sin, and let's say you're fighting it for whatever, 15 minutes, but then at the 15-minute mark, when you cross over, temptation's over, you've sinned. But Jesus felt the full force of temptation and never since. <laughs> that means he actually felt the actual full force of what this world has to offer, all of its darkness, all the brokenness of the world and the evil that is out there. And so it is true, Jesus is the God-man. He couldn't have sinned because he did not have a sin nature. But it doesn't diminish the power of the fact that he was tempted in every respect as we are. He overcame temptation. And so in an effort to see more of the beauty of this idea, I want to do biblical theology work again. And a lot of different sources from commentaries and books went into this, so you need to know that you might look this up later and there might be people word this differently and that's okay. I just kind of made a big mashup, Frankenstein version of this biblical theology. But I want you to see it. And so jot this verse down. It'll be on the screen. This is good for your study later. 1 John 2.16 says this. So important for your fight against sin. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And so this can literally be a battle plan for us as we seek holiness. Here we get the sin and temptation categories for us that are in the world. Do you see them? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, pride of life. These ideas guide the treasures, the philosophies, and priorities of the world and show us what our hearts want when we are not ruled by the Spirit, but instead are ruled by the flesh. And so let's define these for your notes, okay? First one, desires of the flesh. Here's what this means. These are the overwhelming physical cravings, bodily cravings, that we desire to satisfy in sinful ways, so, in other words, in the ways, in, not in the ways that God designed them. So, this can be everything from sex to food to drink. Think physical cravings that we are desiring to fulfill in ways that are dishonoring to God. It's not wrong to have physical desires. Like, if you're tempted to eat when you're hungry, that is not wrong. What is wrong is to satisfy physical desires in a way that is sinful and dishonoring to God. And so, another way to, to say desires of the flesh would be, the sin temptation appeals to our appetites, all right? Appeals to our appetites. Desires of the eyes, these are cravings to possess what we see as if we need them. So coveting things, finding identity in the stuff that we accumulate and have. Or, another way to say it, appeal to affections. So temptation appeal to our appetites, temptation appeal to our affections. Third, Pride of life. This is the craving to be exalted above others in a godlike status, craving affirmation or praise in the place of God, being arrogant or doing good things in front of people to be noticed, or appealing to our ambitions. Ambitions. So, these are temptations that are in the world that you need to be asking yourself, even now, where am I, where am I susceptible? In my fight for holiness, where, where does my flesh see those things and think, I want that? That's where, you're, that's where we got to um, repent and believe and apply the gospel to. But this is so interesting. I love when I read this. This is, this is not a new idea. Like, the devil has been doing this to humankind since the very beginning. So if you're not familiar with your Bibles, God creates everything, everything we see, everything we don't see, makes man, gives them a command. It says, do not eat of this tree because 
and through obedience and dependence, human beings were supposed to learn that that is what true life and joy is. But then we see our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sin. And look at verse, or Genesis 3, verse 6. Jot this down in your notes, but this is amazing. You're going to see these ideas. So when the woman saw that the tree, well, the sin, right? Don't eat that. Was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see it? Good for food. Desires of the flesh appealed to an appetite. Delight to the eyes. Desires of the eyes. They saw it and wanted it. Desired to make one wise. Pride of life. Or an appeal to Eve's ambition, Adam and Eve's ambition. And so what we see is that when we are tempted to disobey God, it is going to be flavored with the things of the world. And if Adam and Eve wouldn't have loved the things of the world, listen, they would not have eaten the fruit. They would not have dishonored God. Do you see where the sin started? It started at the heart. Eve was looking. Okay, God said, don't do this. But look, it looks like it tastes good. Oftentimes we say this fruit was an apple, but nowhere in the Bible does it say what the fruit actually was. So just so you know, it might not be an apple. could be a banana. makes an interesting, like, uh, kind of changes the narrative, but who knows? Good for food. This thing I'm not supposed to eat. Delight to the eyes. It looked good. And I want this so that I might be wise. Their desires started sin. They were tempted by these things. And you need to understand, in your life, you are susceptible to these things because you are a sinner. It's in our nature because of this fall. So let's apply them. We've got to get real tonight. I want to harp on this point because I don't want you to leave and leave with good theological categories for temptation. What I want you is to leave here understanding where you are tempted with the resolve to live for holiness in these areas. So desires of the flesh. It's no question that our world pushes sex as ultimate. Mostly in the way they have tricked us into thinking that what we are attracted to is the core of who we are. They put sex in every show. The whole point of sexual liberation movement is to disciple people into thinking that having sex is the ultimate freedom and ultimate satisfaction in the world. That's the air we breathe. Listen, that's of the world. It is not true. Even advertisements are aimed at making you think that just eating this burger or whatever is all you need. And then even some advertisements combine food and sex as a temptation to get you to buy their product. Desires of the flesh. The world will try to get you to see that you can't have fun or live the good life without feeling some sort of fleshly desire that gets satisfied. Feelings are ultimate. Another angle of this is the world will try to convince you to rest selfishly. There's a reason that the next episode on Netflix starts the countdown the moment you just finished one. That's not to be like, hey, just a reminder, self-control, right? It's designed to feed into what all of us want, which is to please ourselves and not live for others. The world is bent on either making you a lazy person or a workaholic. 
Anything that makes you feel good, as long as you aren't loving God and denying yourself and loving others with your time and resources, the world will dangle in front of you and your heart will want it. I struggle with this so much. Um, so tempted by laziness. My goodness, the amount of times that I would rather just throw on Daniel Tiger so my boys just watch it and I don't deny myself and love those kids. Like, it's horrendous. It is so easy to think a little me time is actually not that big a deal. I'm not saying we don't rest. What I'm saying is we don't rest selfishly. We can convince ourselves that because our bodies crave something, that must mean that God doesn't care how we get it. It's easier to live for myself above everything else. Desires of the eyes. Think about this. The world is built on the idea that you need the newest and best thing to be happy. The newest gadget, the newest toy, newest car, everything is shiny and new and you need this update or you'll never be able to keep up with whatever. It just makes you feel like you need it. So you got to ask these questions. Are you falling into the trap that we need this stuff to make us happy? Some of you picked your major so that you could have a ton of money to get nice, shiny stuff. Instead of, what major should I get to glorify God and love and serve people with the rest of my life? Or what about our inability to be, or our innate ability to be jealous for others people, other people's stuff or their lives? Has it been there? See the way they're living? You think, I should have that, or, you know, I'm seeing, I want that, and you're willing to gossip about them or slander or hold bitterness toward them because that temptation draws you to sin. Desires the eyes. And social media is not inherently sinful, but it will definitely help you fall to the temptation of the desires of the eyes. Don't we all? I just learned about a new social media tonight. I'm going to say this is new, and I'm afraid that it's going to be not new. Be real. That's new? Okay, learned about that. Uh, I won't be on it, but I hope you guys have fun. But you gotta ask, even in our social media, don't we purposely post things to make ourselves look awesome? Or even the people who purposely post things that don't make themselves look awesome, are you just doing that so that people will think you are cool for not caring about if you think they think you're awesome? We can even make humility about ourselves. Like, wow, look how messy my life, I've seen this, like, you know, we take a picture of yourself with, like, in a mess, and it's like, it seems like what you're actually communicating is just look how authentic I am. <laughs> I struggle with this. I literally have unrest in my soul until I get items that I want. Now, these might not be your temptations, but if there's a new book that I want or a new notebook, <laughs> I can feel this temptation. And you can laugh and chuckle at that, but you don't, I don't know what it is for you. But there, you know that feeling of if I don't get this thing, I'm not happy. You need to understand that's a brokenness in your heart that's leading you toward death and away from joy in Christ. I even envy other people's yards. I live in a neighborhood where our, all of our neighbors somehow can afford to get people to come do their yard work. And their yards always look better than mine. And I look at those and I think, man, like I wish I could do that. I'm serious. It's a real thing. These aren't trivial things. These are indicators of a heart that is wrapped up in the desires of my eyes, misguiding my affections and misguided by the world. And it shows that I am weak and I needed great high priests. The pride of life, the American dream, 
philosophy of I'll just do me. Everything is all about using your ambition to make yourself better no matter the cost. And this can even bleed into ministry. How often do we let competition drive us in ministry? That what we actually want to do is serve so that other people see us. We think our efforts are what actually makes this thing go. We should be humble and weak and broken as we minister to other people, but we are so quick to fall into the pride of life. We want God to move on our campus. We just want it to be through us and not whoever. We can get caught up in anxiety thinking that if we can't control all the details of our lives to get the life that we want, then we are not satisfied. So you got to ask yourself these questions, guys. Are you able to say no to food when you clearly aren't hungry? Are you able to say no to a good movie, even when there's content in it that is clearly leading you towards sin? Do you watch pornography? Do you always do what feels good in the moment? Are you able to get off the couch to go do important things and denying yourself? Do you literally feel unrest until you get the stuff that you want? Do you feel incomplete because you don't have certain items or a certain income level or whatever? Are you able to delay satisfaction? What do you spend your money on? Are you easily jealous of other people? Are you able to celebrate when others get good things? Do you feel like you're the most important person in the room? Are you able to do good works without letting people know about it? Are you the hero of every story that you tell? Are you always subtly giving out your resume in conversations? Do you always one-up somebody in conversations? Do you like to talk about your own accomplishments? Are you obsessed with your own lack of accomplishments? Do we feel that we need to be the ones who are self-sufficient in all things? But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus saw all this at play in the world and went toe-to-toe with them and never sinned. Listen, this is not meant to be a guilt trip. This is supposed to be a glory moment for you to see the beauty of Jesus. This is the last text we're going to be at tonight before we end on verse 16, but I want you to see this. Um, This is Matthew chapter 4. We're not going to go through the whole thing. I'll show you quickly. This is Jesus versus the devil, (laughs) And these aren't exact correlations to our Genesis 3 and 1 John categories, but most scholars would agree there's some connection here, even if sometimes they disagree where they connect. So I want you to see this. Here we go. Man, I love this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here we go. He's been baptized, ready to initiate our redemption plan. So he's weak and needy, ready to be dependent on his father. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The most obvious verse in the entire Bible, right? He hasn't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. He was hungry. And the tempter, that's the devil, came to him and said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. What happened there? He's being tempted with the desires of the flesh to partake of a fleshly desire outside of the will of God. But look what our savior does. This is your high priest. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He combated this with having his satisfaction in God's word alone, not his physical desires. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels um, conceding you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against stone. So here he's tempted with the pride of life. Some would say maybe lust of the eyes looking out but he could have shown off his lordship without going to the cross. And your high priest says, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And so he combats this with a steadfast resolve to do things how God intended. 
And then the devil tries again. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Tempted with the desire of the eyes, some might say pride of life there too. And the devil said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Jesus worships his father alone. And I show you this narrative so that you can see that our God was tempted by Satan himself. And this is the Jesus who passed through the heavens and is now in heaven representing us. There's victory for you. You see, he got, like, the tempter has been defeated. And that was just a foretaste of the death blow that was coming on the cross and resurrection, which was just an even better foretaste of the final death blow that death itself is going to get when our Savior returns. And so because this is our high priest, verse 16, and this is what we have to do as the people of God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So because he gets it, because he defeated every sin by his sacrifice, because he is in heaven and still in you by his spirit, listen to me, draw near with confidence. He wants you close. In the moment-by-moment battle with your sin, go to him because he promises a way of escape. Go to him in prayer. Draw near. He has bound himself to come near when you draw near to him. And look at what kind of throne that is. Grace. Not condemnation, but grace to remind you of your forgiveness, to empower you to say no in the moment now, and grace to guide you all the way through the temptations that you face. At this throne, with this Savior, with this high priest, when you draw near, all you get is more mercy and more grace, and it's right in the moment, ready to help you every step of the way. He is better than the allure of sin. Band, wherever you are, if you can make your way back up to lead us tonight. I want to end with this to remind you of the title so that you might leave here with these commands fresh on your heart. Hold fast and draw near. I want you to listen to me. I really do love you. And I'm just getting to know some of you. Some of you are new tonight. But we want you to experience this. This ministry can't become a Christian performance club. We are needy, weak people who need a a satisfying, strong Savior, and we've got him. We can come out from under the throne of Satan's lies and accusation and come into the throne of grace. There's only more grace. Hold fast. Let tonight be a night of new resolve for you and draw near because he has already drawn near to you, and we can enjoy this Jesus who has brought us in. Because he not only sympathizes and understands, he has conquered and he is there with you until you have no more sin and no more temptation ever again when he returns. It's a beautiful thing. If we believe that, it changes everything. A group this size that believes that and leaves this building, hating their sin, repenting, living by his grace with that much joy, can't be stopped. Let's stand and sing.